Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Plodcast, presented by Canon Press. So welcome to the podcast. This is episode 280. 280. I'm Douglas Wilson. I'm very glad you decided to join us. And it, I mean, it's important that you did. You're taking time out of your schedule to listen to this stuff. So what are we going to talk about uh, out, of the, out of the blocks today? Um, I'm going to demonstrate for you what I would willingly confess to you were you to ask. And that is, am I, Douglas Wilson, a boomer? Uh, And the answer is yes, I am a boomer. I was born in 1953, and that means I was just sort of right in the middle of the boomer generator, right in the middle of the pack, and share a lot of the characteristic experiences that other boomers do and have, and yet, there are a whole bunch of differences also, which helps to set up this uh, thing that just recently that has just recently been brought to my attention. And the fact that it had to be brought to my attention is probably one of the most characteristic boomer things you could imagine. All right. Have I set it up properly? Canon Press uh, just recently released uh, the documentary. It's good to be a man with Michael Foster. Benon Tennant and Michael Foster wrote the book, It's Good to Be a Man, which Cannon uh, released before this, and now the, uh, the documentary has been released. And then I interviewed uh, Foster discussing that project. And one of the things that I have that's slowly begun to dawn on me in my interaction with some of the Christian leaders, pastors, teachers of another generational cohort like Michael Foster is the reality the reality of a generational tension between the boomers and the uh, you know the you know the different co- cohorts the Gen Xers the Gen Ys the Millennials and so on. So here is my uh, boomer confession. This was something that I was totally oblivious to. In other words, I had no understanding of generational tension. Now I was very aware of the generational tension between my generation, the boomers, and our parents, because going through the 60s, living through the 60s and the 70s, that whole thing was a revolt. It was a generational, there was a generation gap. And it's sort of like the the boomers pioneered the idea of a generation gap. And it's kind of, some of you might be thinking, so why is it astonishing to you that a generation gap would be repeated. <laughs> you know, now that the boomers have become sort of the establishment, now that the boomers are the man, now that the boomers are the ones approaching retirement, and they are the ones who sort of made out like a bandit. They uh, 
the boomers were, because of a number of factors, because of what the economy was doing when they came of age, the fact that so many of them were uh, operating off of two, um, two incomes, the man and the woman's income, just a number of things. The boomers are really wealthy. And the generations following them have not been able to do as well as the boomers were able to do. And there are various um, reasons. Well, there are a number of reasons for the resentment that could crop up there. And here's the thing. When the boomers revolted against their parents, the generation gap was something that everybody was aware of. The younger, the youthful generation at that time was in revolt, and the generation that had uh, won the Second World War and had produced the boomers was sort of mystified by the whole thing. What is this hippie rebellion business, right? So why would the boomers turn around and be astonished? Well, it's, it's, it's not been as clear-cut in our time as it has in previous as it was with the boomers and their parents you don't have anybody in the streets manning the barricades one generation over against another that's one reason why uh it's be easy for someone like me to uh, miss it another reason is because of the grace of god that has been poured out on us here at Christ Church in Moscow uh we have not had generational tensions within our church, and we have all the generations. So we have the generation that's ahead of mine, we have the boomers, we have, we have the whole age spectrum in our congregation. We've got young families with uh, little kids, we've got families with teenagers, we've got uh, families with grown kids, we've got, you know, we've got the whole spectrum. And because everybody is uh, walking with the Lord and doing what they are called to do uh, by the Lord, there's no occasion for offense. There's no occasion for everybody being mad at each other. And, and so people are not mad at each other. But take the perspective of someone like Michael Foster, who is dealing with uh, a lot of angry young men who grew up essentially fatherless. And either they grew up fatherless because uh, the sexual revolution robbed them of a father. Dad ditched the family and headed off with his secretary. Or dad was essentially married to the Chamber of Commerce and, and was constantly gone. You have a large number of young men who do not know how to be men. And this is why a pastor like Michael Foster has to step into the gap and say, okay, this is how you be a man. This is how you should step up. This is how you should assume your responsibilities. And the, the anger is coming from the fact that, that young men have to be taught this. And why do they have to be taught this? Well, because the boomers didn't do a good job taking one thing with another across the board. Uh, boomers didn't do what they ought to have done with their own sons and, and uh, with their grandsons. So we should not, uh, there's a, there's a YouTube uh, channel, uh, how, dad, how do I, you know, simple things like how do I tie a necktie? How do I do the basic things that a man should be able to do? 
Well, a lot of young men don't know how to do it, and it's because a generation that should have taught them didn't. Now, I would encourage young men, uh, young men who are who feel this void, who feel this ache, and who and who feel the anger, the kind of young men that Michael Foster is ministering to, teaching them. Don't vent your anger on those boomers who did do it. Uh, you don't. What you don't want is the wrong section of each age cohort fighting with the wrong section. Basically, we need to lay the responsibility where it, where it is. Fathers who abdicated, fathers who left their families, fathers who didn't teach. Yeah, that that should be noted. And if you're among the those who did that, repented of, and if you're among those who got beat up by it, um, extending uh, forgiveness where possible. So that's what I have to say about generational tension. Always will be God. So we're continuing on with the podcast, episode 280, and our hamartiological, there's that word, our hamartiological word this time around is episcuo, which refers to be more fierce. All right, episcuo which refers to be more fierce. This is a hotbox. It occurs one time, and it refers to the reaction of the chief priests and the mob when Pilate tried to get Jesus out of their trap. All right, so that's what's happening. He said that, uh, Pilate, that is, Pilate said that he, quote, found no fault in this man. And their reaction was to double down on their ferocity. Luke 23, 5. And they were the more fierce. There, there's our word. And they were the more fierce, saying, He stirreth up the people, teaching throughout all Jewry, beginning from Galilee to this place. <laughs> now notice this. These are the chief priests and the mob who are in the middle of stirring up the people. They're in the middle of, uh, of doubling down on their ferocity. And what do they accuse Jesus of? He stirs up the people. They're, what they're doing is they're clearly, uh, clearly projecting. Pilate had also recognized that their central motivation had, was envy. It says that in Matthew 27, 18 and Mark 15, 10. And so this was the sin that they were fiercely dedicated to. They were doubling down on their envy. These people who wanted to kill Jesus wanted to kill Jesus because they wanted to be like Jesus. Now, they didn't want to be like Jesus submitting to God's terms for that. But they wanted to be like Jesus on their own terms. They wanted to be able to heal the sick and conduct, you know, exercise great works of power. They wanted to be able to draw huge crowds like he could when they taught, but they couldn't because he taught with authority and not like the scribes and so on. So they wanted to be like Jesus. They were envious. And then when Pilate showed this a little bit of an inclination to try to let him go, they uh, uh, doubled down. They were all the more fierce. So once you're dedicated to a particular sinful course of action, it is easy to redouble your energies in it. That keeps you from having to reflect. That keeps you from having to reflect. God don't never change. He's God. So continuing on with episode 280 in the podcast, my book review uh, this time around is a book by Philip Hamburger, and it is called, Is Administrative Law Unlawful? 
is administrative law unlawful? Uh, spoiler alert. Now, this is a big, fat book of dense, careful reasoning on legal slash political matters. And so here's the spoiler. He asked the question in the title, is administrative law unlawful? And the answer is, yes, it is. What Hamburger argues is that uh, the American Revolution, I prefer to call it the American War for Independence, and the Constitution was drafted in order to exclude a particular approach to law that has now found its way back into American law, and it is the system we're currently under. So there was in British law a thing called the royal prerogative. And you've probably heard references to some of these, some aspects of this, where there were places, uh, you know, you could be hauled before a star chamber and your historic constitutional rights did not apply. The, this royal prerogative, this, the, the idea that the ruling uh, monarch, the executive, could have sort of carve-outs where he could dispense with certain legal niceties was one of the things that we were trying to get rid of. That's one of the things we were fighting against. Now, in our American system now, you, you've learned in your basic civics that we have the uh, three branches of government. We have the executive, which is the president, and we have the legislative, which would be both houses of Congress, and we have the judicial, which would be the court system. So we have the legislature, the executive, and the court system. Now, what Hamburger shows is that we also have a fourth branch of government, which has grown, which has grown up, and it's it's swollen past all uh, sense of proportion. And this uh, this would be the regulative state. The regulative state is not the legislature. It is not the executive, even though it's frequently housed under the executive branch. And then uh, you have the court system. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, which is technically under the executive branch, can promulgate regulations that no legislator has ever seen, right? Now, in the idea of a free republic, the idea is that the people select their representatives and those representatives make the laws that the people are going to live under. But what has happened is the state has grown so swollen and so huge that there are tangled thickets of regulations that nobody has ever navigated. Nobody's ever gone through them. Nobody can understand them, which means that they can always get you for something. (laughs) There's a website, I think, called Three Felonies a Day. The main offense of these uh, of this administrative state is that something can be promulgated that is binding on you, but which no there's no accountability for it. There's no election that can reverse it. There is no congressman or senator who voted for it. What they did is they created an agency 
that had the right to make its own regulations, and then they do, and then you get a regulatory notice in the mail that says, hey, you've got to do this, you've got to do thus and such, and you should be, you should ask yourself, is this a law or is it just a regulation? Now, Hamburger's thesis is that is is not that administrative law is burdensome, although it is burdensome. His thesis is not that administrative law is unjust, although they are frequently unjust. His point is that administrative law is unlawful. It's against what they're doing is against the law. What they're doing is itself a form of theft, piracy, usurpation, all the rest of it. Great book. Is Administrative Law Unlawful? Philip Hamburger. Mm-hmm. 